and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. As always, joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Lanville. And we do this every week. So if you enjoy listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're a fan of our show, it would be fantastic if you'd also give us a review. So thanks for doing that. Doug, happy offseason, my friend. How is life in the Glanville household? Oh, yeah. You know, we're, you know it's a next level. As you know, Jay, the offseason, you start to get a little different rhythm in life. My bedtime story reading is off the charts right now. I should do a children's book. Work. That would be that would be cool. Um, we'll have to think of one together. Starkville children, <laughs> come meet us into town green, and you and I will read bedtime <laughs> stories. So uh, yeah, something to something to do. Um, and yes, I'm thinking that Daryl Hall and John Oates, Hall and Oates, 2024. Um, I'm just uh, start my my new campaign uh, <laughs> to have them out there. So yeah, I'm ready. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling pretty good. And uh, yeah, I'm going to miss the, the everyday baseball, but it's time to shift into some, some new zones. But writing, time to step it up on the writing side, man. There you go. All right. Well, Doug, we have a big show ahead of us. A little later in the show, uh, we're going to use our trivia segment to pay homage to the late, great Alex Trebek. And we'll be joined by Andrew Baggerly, who appeared on Jeopardy four times and wrote a amazing column about his experience on the athletics. So check that out. But we'll have Ken Rosenthal with us making his return trip to Starkville to help us preview what I think is going to be one of the most unusual off-seasons in baseball history. Okay, Doug, it's time to welcome in the man who has made more visits to Starkville than anyone in history other than us. I'm not sure he should be proud of that, but we are. Uh, who better to help us preview the off-season madness than our good friend Ken Rosenthal. Ken, welcome back to Starkville. Jason, I spent 32 days in the bubble longing to return to Starkville. <laughs> so I'm happy to be here. You can admit it, right? You, that's the first thing you thought of every day when you woke up in the bubble. Starkville, number one, home, number two. Simple as that. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Do, do we have beaches? We must have beaches in Starkville. I'm, I'm just going to assume we do. Yeah, well, can your wife's not going to actually listen to this, right? <laughs> no, she, no, she will not. Trust me. Okay. She's All right, a big so... fan of both of you, but she's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you can be honest. Start to finish. Now, Ken has a tremendous piece in The Athletic right now uh, on all the off-season storylines to come, and we'll get to those in a moment. But first, boys, this just in from the decision desk. The votes are still being counted. 
<laughs> yes, the votes are still being counted. And by that, of course, I mean the MVP and Cy Young votes. <laughs> we pull out all the production stops in Starkfield, don't we? <laughs> we do it. <laughs> all right. It's awards week. So let's do a quick look at the two big awards. Wednesday night, the Cy Youngs will be announced. I'm pretty sure Shane Bieber is a lock to win that American League Cy Young after a season in which he had a 1.63 ERA. But what about the National League? I think Trevor Bauer is going to win. But what do you guys think, Ken? Bauer. It's the ERA that will push him over the top. And I know we have advanced metrics like FIP and others. XFIP, as BK, Brian Kenny likes to <laughs> rave about from time to time. And those numbers actually point to Darvish a little bit more and DeGrom fares well, but DeGrom sort of faded at the end. So for me, it's Bauer versus Darvish. And Bauer, his consistent excellence, I know the division and playing the AL Central factors into this, and some people have made really good points, Jason, about how it's not the same level of competition, perhaps, but you're, you're looking at the best pitcher in this odd 60-game schedule, and for me, that was Bauer. Doug, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I have to, to second that. I mean, I, I always love to find a little tidbit of statistical interest, and uh, the number three hitter, the number three hitter against Trevor Bauer this season was three for 30 with no extra base hits. Right. I mean, he just he basically neutralized the best hitters in every lineup every day. Uh, three through six hit 133 off him. So, I mean, he was dominant. And the fact that he lost four games tells you either wins and losses are getting more ridiculous, but <laughs> they didn't score any runs for the man. But, uh, yeah, he and, – and I was, you know, I was watching the Cubs with Marquee Sports Network all season, and Darvish was so good. And, and there was a period – they were right there, but then he kind of had those blips at the end, those last couple of starts where he wasn't quite as sharp. I think that knocked Darvish out of the race. Yeah, Trevor Bauer never had the blip. He never did. He had, right. he had a one seven three ERA, struck at 12.3 hitters per nine innings. No qualifying starter in the history of the National League has ever done that. Now, it was a 60-game season. It wasn't 162. So we never know what would have happened. And, uh, I mean, Ken touched on the quality of competition factor. Um, look, Bauer only had three starts against teams with winning records. DeGrom had seven. And the other starts were against the Phillies, Nationals, and Red Sox. So he, he really never had a single easy opponent. So I think if, if everything were equal – we'd say, hey, quality of competition matters. But I don't know. His Over his last three starts, the Grom's ERA went from 167 to yeah. 238. And so I think in the end, there was just too much distance between Bauer's ERA uh, and the Grom's ERA to use strength of schedule, strength of opponent as a tiebreaker. You guys agree? And also, Jason Bauer led the league in whip, which matters to me. He's the yes, hardest sir. guy to hit, the mm -hmm. hardest guy to get on base against. So I have no problem voting for – or I, well, I didn't vote for this particular category, but I would have had no problem voting for him. It's close. It's always close. These things you can parse in any number of ways, but it seems to me Bauer is going to win and win pretty easily. Yeah, and I, like I always say at times like this, he, a guy can only pitch against the team that shows up to play him that night. <laughs> you know, it, he didn't mm -hmm. make the schedule. 
Uh, it's not his fault that somebody else had a tougher series of opponents. And so I, I, I think we have this one correct. Um, I'm a Cy Young voter, so I can't say exactly how I <laughs> voted, but I think you guys might have gotten the gist of it. Uh, all right, what about the MVPs? They're announced Thursday. Uh, I think Freddie Freeman and Jose Abreu are going to win those, but it's close. What do you guys think? Ken? It's really close. And I'm sure that if those two guys win as first baseman, heaven forbid, without great defensive value, <laughs> that there is going to be some squawking from the analytical community that others were more deserving because they offer more base running value, more defensive value. However, Jason, as we've often discussed, this is not highest war competition. It's not that at all, actually. And in both the cases of Freeman and Abreu, their intangible value, as well as the tangible, which is off the charts, and it's great. And the war is good in both cases. It's not like it's a problem. Oh, yeah. But to me, Freeman, in coming back from the virus, in being that mainstay of a team that had a lot of problems with its pitching, guys falling off the radar left and right, injuries, opt-outs, etc. he was that guy again. And – I don't want to say this is a career achievement, but I'm not uncomfortable with that notion. And Machado, to me, I'm not even sure he was the Padres MVP. And Mookie, as great as he was, and I love Mookie, I could vote for him for MVP every year, but <laughs> OPS wasn't in the top 10. It was more his overall value. So I'm good with Freeman. Same with Abreu. And Abreu is a guy that has been the center of that clubhouse. Not just this year when they finally had their breakout, but through the rebuilding years. And the impact and the influence on their Cuban players in particular, Luis Robert and Yohan Moncada, and really the whole Latin contingent in that clubhouse and the entire contingent, period. To me, it means so much. It puts him over the top. Now, LeMayhew, I have no problem with anybody who wants to say LeMayhew is the MVP. He was fantastic, leader in OPS, OPS+, plus, etc., and I know there's some people who would think Trout should be in this mix, too. And, of course, Jose Ramirez, who is the other finalist. Jose Ramirez, perhaps the best statistics, and he meant a ton to his team. But to me, this was the White Sox year in many ways and Abreu's year. Doug, what do you think? Yeah, Ken, yeah, Ken and I mean, just piggybacking on Abreu, I mean, he, he just had a consistency that was, you know, so dominant and because you look at a, a, a Jose Ramirez and he kind of disappeared in August you know he he got he was in this streakiness that he goes through and then he just you can't get him out but Abreu just was in such a zone from day one and, and I always go back to his signing you know he he kind of signed early and it was almost like so happy to just go back to Chicago I think it lifted a lot off of his back and you could just see the way his game changed I mean, the Cubs literally should have like tried to find a way to block him from Wrigley Field. They should have just like locked the door, and like because he, the, he just stepped on them the entire season. And that series he had in Wrigley was just you know one for the ages. Uh, but he just was focused all year. And, I, and to speak to Ken's point about the mentorship, that also is such a revitalizer, and and it really mattered to him that he had this core of young players that looked to him, and. Although that's an intangible, it clearly re resulted in someone that was dominant from really beginning to end. So on, on the National League side, I, I like Freeman. I just think it, the, there's a separation between him and Osuna 
he played the field for starters all year. Uh, COVID for him may have been that game changer in that he was already a great player. He just went next level. Sort of like when R.A. Dickey, you know, climbed, what was it, Kilimanjaro or something. You know, you face like life and death. And Freeman just was unbelievable. And just the, the key hits, the defense, the way he picks up his infield, and the fact that he's a mainstay in Atlanta with this young core and is still consistently great. Uh, I think he put it all together in 2020. One last point, Jason, real quick. Both guys, very good defenders. They don't play a position of great defensive value, but they're very good defenders. Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm glad you uh, brought that up. I was going to mention this. Um, The the last week of the season, when I was working on my big awards column, uh, I talked to uh, people all over baseball, and I talked to an executive from one team who said, if it's close – You've got to vote for the guy who plays the most significant defensive position. And in, I mean, he, in his case, he thought that was Ramirez, not Abreu. So I looked it up. Jose Abreu tied for the AL lead in defensive runs saved at his position. Jose Ramirez was minus six defensive runs saved, mm-hmm. right? So I, I don't see how you can deduct defense points in this particular situation, um, I, I, I don't I don't think that should be the factor. And then Freddie Freeman, I pulled up the baseball reference leaderboards again today. Freddie Freeman finished first or second in 22 different offensive categories. 22, right? So as much respect as I have for Mookie and both those guys in San Diego, you guys said it well. It's just Freddie Freeman's time. Can we leave it at that? I think we can. Honestly, I do. All right, let's do that. Uh, all right, now let's look into the future. Uh, the future of what I think is going to be a very strange offseason. Can you have a brilliant look at a million different offseason storylines in your column in The Athletic? Why don't we start with free agency? Tell us what you expect. I'm not quite sure what to expect, but I don't expect it to happen quickly. And obviously the Blue Jays signed Robbie Ray on Saturday. That's a team we know is going to be aggressive. They proved it right there and they can do some things. But there are a couple of factors in play here. One is the state of where the game is. Will we start on time? Will we play 162? When will teams know more about what the landscape looks like? Will the vaccine come into play? And we had great news on the vaccine early Tuesday morning, positive news, and become a factor where fans can be allowed into the park. All of this is an unknown right now. And as it's an unknown, it seems to me teams are not going to want to rush into the major moves. And the other factor that is kind of looming large here is Steve Cohen taking over the Mets. If you are the agent for George Springer, or DJ LeMayu, or Trevor Bauer, any of the top guys, JT Realmuto, of course. You want to wait for the Mets to get their front office in place and give them every chance to sign your guy. So those are two factors. Generally speaking, we go slowly anyway. We've seen that over the last couple of years. Everyone waits for the non-tenders. That's going to be December 2nd. So I don't expect it to move quickly. I don't expect it to be any different than it's been in recent years as far as the middle class is concerned. They're going to struggle, struggle even worse than they have before because the market will be flooded. But I also think, and I point this out in the story as well, I'm not saying there are more spenders than we think, 
But there are teams that are going to spend. The teams that just hired new managers, the White Sox, the Tigers, the Red Sox, they are going to want to compete. The Mets have a new front office and a new owner. They want to compete. And the Giants are a team, the Blue Jays, the Twins. So I just rattled off about eight teams without even naming the Dodgers and the Yankees who are going to be active in some fashion. So I don't know that it's going to be as bleak at the top end as perhaps we anticipated, but it's still going to be difficult. And you've heard the word bloodbath, and I think it might be a bloodbath for the middle class. Yeah, and, and, and when you say that, t- tell me what you, th- what you mean. Uh, do you think there are veteran players who might not even get signed at all? It's happening every year now, Jason. And there are guys who get run out of the game. But really what I mean more is guys signing contracts below what their expectations might be. And we saw the Colton Wong decision by the Cardinals. We saw the Brad Hand decision by the Indians. Other decisions along the same lines. Really, the only exceptions were Zach Britton was one, and there was one other guy whose option was picked up, and he's eluding me right now. But in general, the market will be flooded. So if you're a reliever in particular, because the relievers are the guys that are just being thrust out there, it's not going to be as easy to get the contract you wanted. And, of course, the distrust of relievers' consistency plays into that as well. So that is what I mean, that the middle class of free agents will be so flooded with players that it's going to be difficult for them to get the deals they deserve. So if you're an $8 million player or see yourself as that, maybe you settle for four or have to settle for four. If you're a $4 million player, you take two and, and so on and so on. Yeah, I think that if if I remember right, we talked right after the Colton Wong and Brad Hand options were turned down. And I, I told you the way I look at this is that's not a shock. That's a signal. That's a signal of how teams think right now. Every time there's an option that's not picked up, every time in a couple of weeks when we see the players who get non-tendered, it's just an indication of what modern front offices now view as interchangeable parts. And I, I, I mean, I've had people in front offices predict to me, we could have 300 free agents this winter by the time it's all said and done. Is that crazy? We've never seen anything like that. No, and I think the non-tender date, Jason, is going to be really ugly because if teams have the option of perusing the free agent market, which will be overflowing with players or paying their guy an arbitration inflated salary when they think they can get comparable elsewhere, they're going to take that decision and make that decision. And it's going to be a problem for players. Oh, and, and Ken, I wonder your thoughts about how uh, the contracts may be structured differently. I mean, is there some bandwidth in there, whether you're loaded with incentives or options or, I mean, do you, are you seeing any indication that that might play a role in, in how uh, players are viewed or how owners are going to approach the market? Look, the one thing I've thought of with that is might multi-year deals be heavily backloaded because this year coming up is going to be another year of financial uncertainty. Again, we don't know exactly how many fans will be allowed in parks. Would I think that full capacity is a pipe dream for 162? At this point, yes. The virus is surging. We don't have a vaccine yet. It's hard to imagine, but we don't know. So I can see that happening where deals are backloaded. And the other aspect of that is the CBA. 
and the CBA is expiring December 1st, 2021. So no one knows what the new economic landscape will look like, and no one really has a feel for that. So that's going to influence people as well, perhaps. I don't know that, but it's another factor here that is going to come into play. Yeah, and I mean, I think of the collective bargaining process and, I mean, any indications of trying to get ahead of that or is it just truly that waiting game? I don't know. And here's the thing, Doug. So let's say, I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's talk, let's look at Bauer as an example because Bauer is the guy who's talked about signing one-year deals. If you're Bauer, do you take the one-year deal at 30? Let's say you can get 30, which he might because that's the going price for top starting pitchers. And then hope for a new economic system in which things might be even more conducive to guys like that. Maybe they change the luxury tax rules and they put the thresholds up way high. I'm just giving an example here. Or if you're Bauer, maybe you want the multi-year. Or let's use another player. Let's say George Springer. Maybe you want the multi-year because you're afraid of a lockout. And you're thinking... This year might be bad. Next year might be a lockout year. Hey, let me get all the guaranteed money I can. So I don't know how I would view it if I were a player. I'd probably rely on my agent to kind of sort through this, but it's something that is multifaceted to say the least. Now, now, now we've, we've talked about the big free agents getting their money. And yet, you know, I keep looking at the list. Who is that exactly? I, I mean, I don't yes. think we're talking about many guys. We're talking about three players. We're talking about JT Real Muto, George Springer, Trevor Bauer. Is there anyone else? And No, there isn't. And even those three players, none of them is Mookie Betts, okay? Springer is a little bit older. We know that. Real Muto is a catcher, so that's going to limit him. Springer's 31. Real Muto, I believe, 29, Jason. He'll and Bauer... Three. Okay, Bauer is Bauer. He's an iconoclast. Teams are going to be some teams will be turned off by him as well. So, <laughs> I don't think we're seeing a two hundred million dollar player even in a normal market in this group. Maybe not even a hundred and fifty million dollar player. So, it is a different kind of class. And the another factor, the great shortstop class of two thousand twenty one twenty two is looming. That group is superstar laden. <laughs> there are five great players. I'm talking about Baez and Lindor and Story and Correa and Seager. Five. Five guys you want on your team. So that could, too, have an effect on not only the shortstops in this market, Semyon, Gregorius, Simmons, but also other players and how they're viewed. Maybe teams will want to wait, see how this year goes, and then go crazy for one of those. You can't count on getting them, but I can see that logic taking place. And there are other free agents in that class as well who will be highly sought after. Oh, yeah. And that's a good segue to talk about trades, which you also wrote about. Francisco Lindor. Don't the Indians have to trade him this winter if they're going to trade him at all? Yes, they do. And I think at this point it comes down to, in this economic climate, when they are one of the most challenged teams, even in normal circumstances, they cannot carry the $20 million arbitration number that he's going to command. It's going to be roughly in that neighborhood. It's very similar. Jason, remember David Price when the Rays decided to trade him? Oh, yeah. They traded him at the deadline before that next arbitration year. So the team that got him, the Tigers, got him for two pennant races. 
and they were scared to death of that number. They couldn't abide that number. So that's why the Indians have to trade him. Now, you can make the case they should have traded him last year because now they're in a tougher situation. And I drew the analogy in the column between him and Mookie Betts. They're both very similar at this stage. Lindor right now, Mookie a year ago, entering last year of arbitration, $20 million price tag most likely. Age 27 season coming up, both superstar talents, guys that you value not just as players but as entertainers, magnetic, face of the franchise types. So the problem for the Indians is the Mookie package was considered, I think, in the industry not all that great. It was not actually terrible, in my opinion. Verdugo's a good player. I think Jeter Downs, from everything you hear, is going to be a good player, and Connor Wong has a chance. But now you're trying to trade Lindor when you don't know if you're getting him for 162 games. And there's all this financial uncertainty that didn't exist at the time of the Mookie Betts trade because the industry has taken a downturn. So – it's a big challenge for the Indians, plus the shortstop class coming up, of which he's a member. I don't know that they get what we think they should get for Lindor. Yeah, and, and if they wait for the deadline, that that's a lot of time that that they've lost. Um, it, it's a lot of production that the team trading for him is missing out on. And there, there's no ability to get the draft pick. <clears throat> Right. right, so That's right. They, like the, all of those things point to now. Um, so, who would the teams be in your mind? I, I noticed one thing in your column. You didn't mention the Dodgers, a team that's been linked to him a lot. They have, and certainly they were linked to him last year, and it was never quite clear how badly they wanted him because they had Seager. They didn't want to move Seager to third. They didn't really want Lindor and Seager on the same team. They could have, could have moved Seager elsewhere. But now Seager's a superstar, too. He reestablished himself as that guy this year. So, for sure. if anything, they try to extend him. Good luck with Scott Boris. And <laughs> if they don't do that, they can pick out one of the other guys next year. And it could be Lindor, for all they know. So, I'd stick with Corey Seager for one more year. I expect them to re-sign Turner as well and go from there. Now, the teams that I did identify, the Giants, the Mets, were going to be linked to every player, possibly the Yankees. And I also wrote a little bit about the Blue Jays, simply because their front office, of course, is rooted in Cleveland. Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins were there when Lindor was drafted in the first round of the 2011 dra- draft, eighth pick overall. And the Blue Jays are one of the few teams that have some money, or at least are believed to have some money, because they're owned by Rogers Communications. They weren't hit as hard as some of these other clubs by pandemic baseball financially. So I don't think it's a likelihood. It's sure interesting to talk about, and I don't rule them out on anything. My understanding is they're going to be involved in pretty much every big player in free agency and trade. Wow. Um, I should ask you about Nolan Arenado too, because we spent a lot of time talking about him last offseason, him getting traded. Um, what do you think are the chances that an Arenado gets dealt and where? There's a chance. Now, it's not easy. He's got six years left at $33 million a year on average. He is coming off a down year for him offensively because he had that shoulder issue that lingered the entire year. And listen, trading a player of that expense in this environment is just complicated. But 
Rockies owner Dick Monfort sent 11 season ticket holders right at the end of the season. And he said, listen, we're going to have to make some adjustments. Everyone is. Every team is. And he cited the losses of $3 billion industry-wide that Rob Manfred has cited as well. So there is a possibility because basically the Rockies, they're a team that wants to continue competing. They're not going to rebuild. But they could get major leaguers for Arenado, and perhaps that would defer the cost going back to the other team, right? And they ideally probably will choose to build around Trevor Story, who, as far as we know, does not hate it there, whereas Arenado might hate it there. <laughs> so, so I would imagine they explore it, and maybe they get it done. We've heard St. Louis with them with him for years, and – St. Louis, of course, took a big hit during the 2020 season because they rely so heavily on gate receipts. I'm not sure they can do it. I'm not sure the teams, Jason, honestly. It would have to be a contender, I would think, for Arenado to approve it. And people also talk about the opt-out. He has the opt-out after this season. But he also has the control through the no-trade clause. So if a team comes to him, let's say, just for example, it's the Rangers. Not a contender right now, but let's just pick them. Why not? And they say, listen, we want you, but we want you to push back that opt-out. I think he would do that to get out. I do. I'll tell you a team that makes a lot of sense if uh, the Rockies would pay down the money some is the Nationals. They do. That that Anthony Rendon void this year was so palpable every day of the season. It's funny, Jason. I didn't really write much about the Nationals, but I had an executive yesterday tell me, they could be a player for Real Muto. Certainly, they need a catcher. And yeah. obviously, Arenado makes sense. And they were one of the teams that I believe did talk to the Rockies at one point. Now, they have $161 million in commitments already, or that's their estimated payroll. Yeah. That's pretty high right now. Oh yeah. So I don't know where their ownership is going to be. Their ownership is <laughs> unpredictable when it comes to money. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So – Certainly, the need is there, and Mike Rizzo is an aggressive guy, as we know. I would not be shocked to see them get in that mix. Yeah, and, and Ken, you know, what do you think is the larger industry concern about, you know, we're mentioning all these iconic players. Like, players, historically, you'd be like, oh, yeah, they're going to be there forever. Betts in Boston, and Lindor in Cleveland, and and that is just getting more difficult to accomplish. And do you, are we at this point of, hey, you know, it's going to be have and have nots or, you know, is there something you can see that could right the ship? Because it just seems like Cleveland just has no chance of signing a player that we already saw what happened with Mookie Betts. Right? Boston was in shambles and the Dodgers win the World Series. And and it happened that quickly. So, you know, what's your level of concern for that that trajectory? I have concern. And it's not just Cleveland, of course. It's Tampa Bay. It's Oakland. It's a couple of other teams. Pittsburgh that seem forever challenged financially and unable to sustain success. They can reach a point, but it's difficult for those teams to sustain it. Now, Oakland has done an amazing job. So has Tampa Bay, for that matter. But they're constantly churning. And the phenomenon you just described, the ability to keep players, it's really just not there. So since the advent of free agency, people have asked, oh, man, you don't see guys staying with the teams anymore. It's not good for the game. I would disagree with that. I think fans love the action. And they don't mind seeing players change teams. And it makes it all the more cool when a guy like Freeman, for example, does stay in one place. And he has so far, and I frankly expect that he will. But 
for those franchises that are strapped economically, they'll be even more strapped now and more challenged. And yeah, there is real concern. And we talk about, not to get off the topic too much, but relocation and expansion. Well, you can't really expand until you get these issues straightened out. And maybe there's a couple of relocation candidates in this mix. I don't know. But it's a difficult question for sure. And it's the age-old question with this sport because, of course, the revenue is mostly local as opposed to the NFL, which is revenue mostly shared from the national television contracts. Well, you know, I wrote about Lindor and the Indians earlier this year. And, hey, fans might love the action. Fans in Cleveland aren't going to love that action. No, 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 no. Absolutely. You know, and uh, it just feels like you have a situation where the player is saying he would love to stay. The You've had ownership, front office, saying we love this player. And yet there's no chance that they're going to keep Francisco Lindor. And I don't know what that says about baseball economics, but this is a situation that somehow needs to be addressed. Of course, we've been saying this for 25 years. Jason, you put it well, though. And when you have a player who has said he wants to stay, and when you have a team that loves the player, they do love the player. Chris Antonetti's line about Lindor is always he checks every box. Yep. That team should have a chance to keep the player. I don't know how it happens, but structurally, perhaps the game has to figure out a way for the Indians to be able to keep a Francisco Lindor. Now, again, it's not the way this sport is economically laid out. I get it. It's been, you're right, 25 years, maybe even more. We've been talking about this. But at the same time, the point you just made is clear. There's something fundamentally wrong when a team that drafts the player, develops the player, is fond of the player, cannot keep the player. Yeah, we could spend a whole show just on this. So let, let's talk about some other trade candidates. The Cubs. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. your, your your take on the Cubs in your column was so interesting because for two years we've been kind of waiting for the Cubs to make that dramatic move to change their mix right, and go at it a different way, and it hasn't happened. And just reading your column, it sounds like you, you're not so sure it's going to happen again this winter. Well, the number one question with the Cubs is what will be the level of payroll that ownership dictates? And like a lot of teams, they're waiting. And they're waiting to see, is there going to be a vaccine? Will it be accessible to major league players? Not the neediest group here. So that is kind of an X factor. Now, if ownership decides payroll is going from a place where it is right now to a place far, far below, they're going to have to make a lot of moves. They know that. But if the cuts are not severe, then they're in an interesting position because you look at their players who are most likely to move simply because they're entering their final year before free agency. It's Bryant, Schwarber, and Bias. None of them had a good season, even close to a good season in 2020. Granted, it's a weird year. We know that, and certain players didn't perform. But if you're trying to trade them, it's hard to make a good case for any of them right now. So maybe they just kind of keep it together for one more year, trade one or two of these guys, perhaps, plug in Bodie, plug in Nico Horner, find some cheap starting pitching to supplement what they have, which is pretty good, Darvish, Hendricks, Mills, and Alzale, and then build a little bit in the bullpen as well. And then my question is, and this is the real question, 
who's going to catch them exactly in the NL Central? Now, crazy things always happen. We know that. But Reds are cutting payroll. Pirates never spend. The Brewers are in a really difficult spot. Their farm system's not very good. They're not going to spend. And the Cardinals, we talked about them. They're in a funny place, too, because I don't know how much they can spend. So I don't see the Cubs situation as dire unless ownership says we got to go down 60 million and you got to trade Darvish or Hendricks. Ownership wouldn't say that. They would just give them the number. And at that point, DOF standing Jed Hoyer would say, okay, to get to that number, here's what we have to do. And that would be the undoing of the Cubs. Could happen. But if it doesn't happen that way, and if they're in the same relative range payroll wise, they might be okay. All right. Well, yeah, and Ken, and, and you see that as related to the fact that some of these teams are so much more heavily connected to gate revenue and, and dependence on fans. Yeah, and it's not a division that really has ever a big spender besides the Cubs anyway. You've seen teams spend at times, but the Cubs definitely have the highest payroll. Now, Doug, I'm curious your thoughts on the Cubs because I'm talking about perhaps staying in the course when, in fact, People have been pulling their hair out for three years trying to figure out how to get this team to hit. They've changed hitting coaches every year. It probably is time to change some players. Yeah, I, I agree, Ken. I mean, I, I've watched a slow-growing mutiny going on on the offense uh, and these September collapses. And, um, you know, obviously the Marlins knocking them out was just disappointing. But they, they've limped over that finish line, even if they've gotten there for the last, you know, three years. And... Um, and so you look at players like Baez, who struggled, as you mentioned. Bryant was always in this discussion about trade him now, trade him now. And there was a period until this year, you were like, okay, Bryant, Machado, Harper. I mean, you could make arguments for his value in there. And he fell off a cliff. He had injuries and all things have gone wrong. So now you're you're working with such low value to move players. Uh, and maybe, it, maybe it's a chance to get that discount and say, hey, you know, it's, it's not a bad time to approach a player when they had a bad year and you know they have an upside and say, okay, sign this deal. Maybe that's their chance. Uh, but there, there's something about Chicago that has this real passion for their core. There's like a core that they just, they, they love to see it with Rizzo and, and, and it brought that 2016 championship to, to home. So there, I think there'll be a lot of struggle, but I don't see the patience there for playing 162 games and watching the offense uh, struggle all year. I think they want to see that change. No, agreed. And it's interesting with Brian too, Doug. Here's a guy that turned down a big deal. We don't know exactly what it was. The reports have been 200 million. Others have said no. But he turned down some level of major money. And now is it remorse? Is it, oh my gosh, I should have taken that. How much is that weighing on his mind? It's an interesting question. I don't know. It's a human being, you know? I mean, it's like anybody else. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of players that understand what it's like to chase that money that you never had, but it's in your head. Um, we've touched on this just a little bit. We've got a, we've got a number of teams with front office openings. You mentioned the Mets. You mentioned the Angels. The Marlins are, are looking. But uh, Doug and I both have ties to philadelphia what's your take on the phillies and where they are i don't understand what they're doing honestly and i alluded yeah. to it in what i wrote to me if you're going to fire mac Plantech, okay 
you can build a case for doing that, a very strong case, in my opinion. But if you're not going to replace him, and if you're simply going to continue with the man above him, Andy McPhail, and the guy who was below him, Ned Rice, what exactly was the point of firing him? You're not taking a new direction. The point of firing the general manager is to bring in fresh blood and take a new approach. You're going to see that with the Mets, right? You're going to see it with the Angels, for better or worse. And the Phillies seem to be just sitting there and waiting. Now, there might be reasons for them to wait in terms of, all right, the action's not going to be that quick. They can just see what happens here. But at the same time, why are other teams eager to make these front office moves? The Phillies are just, nah, we're okay. We're good. Shouldn't be good. The whole point of firing a GM, when you fire a GM, <laughs> it is basically saying we failed as an organization. That's the statement you make when you fire a GM. That's the regime change. That's the idea. But they're not going there. And frankly, Jason, it baffles me. And I know it baffles a lot of their fans, too. Yeah, baffles is a good word. I, and, I, I mean, maybe you've heard something different than what I've heard, but I, I haven't heard a single indication that they have even begun to start the process in any way of looking for a president of baseball operations, looking for a GM, either, both, neither. Um, It's four weeks since they fired the general manager and the owner, John Middleton, said some really tough stuff about Matt Klintak and how unhappy he claimed to be and then to go four weeks and then do nothing, make no effort to even explore filling the vacancy? How does this compute? And also, Jason, let's compare them to the Mets. Because while Philadelphia is not as big a market as New York, it's one of the biggest markets in the sport. And they've got a beautiful ballpark. Everything's set up really well. With the Mets, when we talk about them, what are we talking about? Well, maybe they go after David Stearns. Maybe they go after Chris Antonetti. This guy, that guy, big names. Now, they might not get any of them because they're under contract. But why are the Phillies not talking about getting one of those guys or someone else of that caliber? Why are they not in the mix at all? It just it doesn't add up to me. And you can say, well, money's not going to be spent yet. Maybe that's the reason because we don't want to put a GM in a bad position if money's not going to be spent. Well, then, if that's the case, why is the money not going to be spent? Why are you not going all out for JT Real Muto. What are you thinking? They need a catcher. They need a shortstop because Gregorius is a free agent as well. And yet they're inert. That's a bad place to be. That's a critical point in the life of their franchise. They have now gone more years without making the postseason than any team in the National League. JT Real Muto's a free agent. Bryce Harper's watching his clock is ticking this is these are his prime years uh, how what's Bryce gonna think if they basically punt on a season at this point wow that's a great question and also when we talk about that postseason streak you just mentioned Jason this was a 16 team postseason yes it was <laughs> the, the Marlins made the playoffs with a COVID outbreak so that's damning and the Harper thing does loom over them because it's so interesting. He's been vocal about wanting to sign Real Muto. At the same time, he can squawk all he wants. He didn't negotiate an opt-out in that deal. So he's there. Yeah. And granted, you want him to be happy. You want the team to be good. 
But John Middleton does not have to bow to Bryce Harper. If he has reasons for not signing players, Bryce is he's there. He's not going anywhere. Yeah. What about Gir- Girardi? Do you think that's a good anything is, is there is there a there there? You know that that was a you know definitely disappointing from you know his legacy coming in and just kind of almost ready to hit the ground running, and they they really showed no doubt, Doug. And when I talk about Harper the way I just did, obviously they want to make him happy and want to win, and the same would be true for Girardi. And to me, he gets a pass for last year because their bullpen problems were so pronounced. Here's a guy a manager who is excellent. He has made his name partly because of his ability to run a bullpen and to keep guys going and just do an overall really outstanding job at it. And they gave him nothing to work with, right? So to me, he gets a pass. But the question I have with Girardi is the question we have with Harper. What's he think of all this? He didn't sign up for this. So it (laughs) remains to be seen again how this is all going to play out with them. But – the early signs are not encouraging, to say the least. All right, one, we don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about the Phillies. Um, I, I, <laughs> we just had a couple of interesting managerial hires, A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora. They both got jobs after serving their suspension, which brings, I, I think, this question to mind. Is there any chance that Carlos Beltran gets a job? And is there any chance that Jeff Lunau ever gets another job in baseball Beltran certainly there's a chance now the difference between him and Hinch and Cora is he was not an accomplished manager when the Mets let him go he was not even a manager at all he had not managed a single game yet (laughs) Hinch and Cora when they were working in their previous jobs established themselves as two of the best in the game and you can say yeah but they cheated no they were two of the best managers in the game regardless now they did do what they did and they did serve their penalties for that Beltran I can see him getting back in the game for sure. There's no reason he shouldn't. In my opinion, these guys, all of them, they did their time, and now they're in good standing in Major League Baseball. People can say the suspension should have been longer. Well, they weren't, and here they are. They're ready to work again. Beltron was really highly thought of before all this happened. I don't expect that to change. I expect him to do what he wants to do in the game. If he wants to be a manager again, maybe he can get to that point. If he wants to go back to a front office like the position he had with the Yankees, he can do that too. Luno, on the other hand, is suing the Astros. That news was broken last night by Bill Shaken. He also has taken zero responsibility and accountability for what happened when he was the general manager of this team that concocted the most egregious sign-stealing system, an illegal system, in the history of the game. So I don't know that he gets back in anytime soon just because of the scorched earth approach he's taken. Hinch, of course, went on MLB Network with Tom Verducci, did a long interview with him, took responsibility, did the same in his news conference. Alex Cora, I expect, will be the same kind of way or in the same kind of mode. Luno has not been like that at all. Well, and I'm wondering, Ken, you know, you think about once you get into these legal proceedings, you know, what ends up in discovery, you know, like that's when evidence question. starts to come Ooh. up, that's going <laughs> to that's gonna be really scary for not just the Astros, but probably MLB. So that, you know, that's going to be very interesting. Um, I, you know, and I also, you know, I guess one other thought about, I go back to spring training when I was with the Yankees in 05, which I didn't make that team. My locker was next to Jason Giambi. 
And every single day he apologized, you know, for the, his name even associated with steroids. The whole, every single day, just spoke it, answer all the questions. And, you know, it, it worked out fine for him from that standpoint going forward. I think it, you know, Hint seems to take it by the horns and say, okay, you know, right out of the gate, I think they'll talk about it openly, Alex Cora. Uh, you know, before this, obviously, year, they had a lot of credibility. Obviously, they have to earn it back. But I see that as, as, as possible. Clearly, they have the opportunity on the field. Before we let you go, I want to play a quick game of over and under. Okay, you ready for this one? Ready. <laughs> All right. Number of games in the season next year. Why don't we go with 140, over <laughs> or under? I'm going to be an optimist and say over. All right, Doug, what do you got? I'm I'm saying full season. Why not? <laughs> I, I, okay, I was also going to go over, but just to be different, I'll go under. <laughs> I, I, I'm not Under's sure about this the one. More likely, to be perfectly honest, at this moment, yeah, which is which yeah. is a, which is sad to even think. Okay, number of leagues that will use the DH next year. I guess I have to I have to I have to set this at one and a half, right? Isn't that the isn't that what they do in Vegas? Yes, <laughs> one and a half. I'm going over leagues. there. Doug? Yeah, I think it's here to stay. I, it's got to be. Does it have to be collectively bargained? It certainly does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't sound right. happy about it, Dave. Yeah, I'm wondering. Oh. Yeah, I just. <laughs> it was cool. I, I work with it. I, I can work with it. I just. Uh, I missed the pitcher hitting. So exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know that those negotiations will zip along, but I'm going to also go over. Um, okay. Number of years in Trevor Bauer's next contract since he said he wants to go year to year. I guess I have to go with one and a half again. Over or under, Ken? Under. I don't believe he gets the multi-year he wants and then takes the one year and just cashes out on that one. Yeah, absolutely. He's going one-year deal and with like 13 option seasons attached to it. Oh, it's going to be okay. a, a thing of beauty, his contract, no doubt. Oh, man. I, oh, yeah. I, I'm actually going to I'm gonna play a hunch here and say over. I just think it's it's not a year to take a one-year contract if you can avoid it. So I'm just thinking logically there. I'm not thinking like him. All right, one more. Number of visits by Ken Rosenthal to Starkville before next opening day. Uh, I'm going to go with four and a half. Over or under? That's high. I think under. I don't think you're going to want me that often. <laughs> oh, really? Doug, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say four. I think, you know, winter meetings, all these. Are there going to be winter meetings? I guess they'll virtual. be virtual. It's virtual everything. Uh, virtual everything, yes. Uh, so, yeah, I'll say four. So I'll say under. So you guys are both going under. You understand that we can yeah. manipulate this. <laughs> get it right. <laughs> Jason, Jason plays to win. Right, so, so I'm going over. You're on every week from now on. So there you go. Ken, always awesome to have you here. Be sure to stop by the Starkville Diner for that free piece of pie that we allotted for you. Always great to have you, man. Thanks, Jace. Thanks, Doug. All right, Ken. Talk soon, like next week. All right, Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. Normally, we literally involve you by inviting the person who submits the most fun question of the week to join us live 
on this very podcast. But we're going to do something a little different this week because we wanted to honor the man who first posed this week's question and a man who was one of the people who inspired my personal love of baseball trivia, the great Jack Shore, who passed away last month at the age of 88. So first, why don't we read the question that uh, was tweeted at us over the weekend by the women's basketball coach at LaSalle University in Philadelphia, Mountain McGillivray. He asked, who are the two players who lead their franchise history in singles, doubles, triples, and homers? Now, that's a good one. Uh, Mountain attributed this question to our friend Jim Salisbury, who does such a great job covering the Phillies for NBC Sports Philadelphia. But in fact, the first time I ever heard it, it was Jack Shore who asked it. I uh, asked it to me, asked it to everyone else in the press box in Philadelphia a few years back, because that was Jack's thing. Jack covered baseball and basketball in Philly for 50 years. It's amazing. And he was one of those rare people in sports, especially in Philly, who everyone loved. And it was because he asked me so many great baseball trivia questions that I started coming up with baseball trivia questions of my own. At first, I was just doing it to try to stump him. But then I started dropping them into my columns. And then I was asking them on Mike and Mike on ESPN. And I'm still doing my whole trivia shtick on MLB Network and on this podcast. And that would not have happened, Doug, if Jack Shore hadn't been my friend and my partner in trivia. We had so many laughs over the years sharing these questions. Uh, It was honestly one of the highlights of my life and career to have Jack Shore sit down next to me in a press room or the press box and say, I got one for you. It was awesome. So, Jack, thank you. I miss you, my friend. Uh, You're a legend. Uh, Doug, you played for the Phillies twice. You know what it was like (laughs) to just run into all these people that covered sports in Philadelphia. Here was a guy who did it for 50 years and always had a smile on his face. Doug, you can reflect on that, right? Yeah, Jay. And I, I think, you know, just when we des- decided that we would talk about his life, I definitely took some time to to read and hear from just listening to you talk about the mentorship. You know, I think that that's something that resonated and the kindness, you know. And, and I think as a player, you can get into the blur of just the season and not really knowing as much who you're, you know, talking to you on a day-to-day basis, but the beat writers uh, are the sort of core of your communication with the world and the world's understanding and appreciation of what you're doing as an athlete and the celebration of a community and uh, the power of writing and the power of these writers that keep that legacy, that keep that voice out there uh, is not only significant, but you get a greater appreciation as time goes by. And, and so, I, you know, I wish I did have more time to talk, you know, talk to Jack and appreciate writers of his caliber communicating these messages uh, about the sport I love. Yeah, and you're legendary for having a key to the palestra, his own key to your gym, Doug, uh, <laughs> your arena. Yeah, go Quakers. <laughs> yeah, I just that's because he ran the weekly media game at the palestra for 50 years, right? And uh, he's the answer to the trivia question, who scored more points at the palestra than anybody? It's Jack Shore. Uh, Incredible. You know that he, he I, I once beat him at horse in my driveway. Oh. In my driveway. 
in my driveway. Oh, very nice. So I love it. One of my proudest achievements. All right. Now, in his honor, let's take a shot at his question. Uh, All right. Name the two players in history who led a franchise in singles, doubles, triples, and homers. Uh, I have to admit, I was pretty sure I still remembered one of these answers. Almost certain one of them was George Brett. Like, think about that one. That makes total sense. But who was the other? Um, You know, I started thinking about potential guys on these these historic franchises. Uh, I thought about Stan Musial, but I I keep going back to Willie Mays. He hit 600 homers for the Giants. Uh, He got 3,000 hits for the Giants. I know he definitely led the league in triples, did a lot of that. So he feels like he could be right. But then I thought, wow, the Giants have been around a long time and guys hit a lot of triples back in the day. So maybe I should be thinking about those teams that haven't been around so long. Evan Longorian, Tampa Bay, maybe. Uh, Todd Helton in Colorado, the human trivia answer. There's so many <laughs> possibilities. But I- I'm just going to go with George Brett and Willie Mays. So, Doug, what do you think? Yeah, good, good. They're on my, my, my short list here. I think Brett's a great answer, too. I was like, wow. He was incredible. Um, oof, I, I think. Um, I mean, Hank Aaron. I mean, you know, he he, he must have been about him. Oh boy, um, I thought about Yastrzemski because you know, just you know, people who just played forever with some single organizations or. Ooh, all right, Ernie Banks. What about Ernie? Like you know, got to hit a lot clubs? of triples though, man. That's the thing. Triples, yeah, triples. But then who had more triples in Cubs history? All right, this is a tough one. I like Stan Musial. <sighs> Aaron Helton. Ooh, Helton, man. <laughs> Come on. Man, that's killing. Come on, Ken you. Griffey Jr.? No, he didn't play that. Hey, there's all right, no all way right. that he had more singles than Ichiro. All right, that's, that's true. That's what I figured. All right, so I'm going to go Stan the Man Musial. And, uh, man. Uh... And when you say Milwaukee Braves, that's the same, right, as Atlanta? I don't know. All right. We'll say Hank Aaron and Stan Musial. That's it. Okay. Hank Aaron, Stan Musial. This um, hurt my soul. I, There's I, so many good choices. I think I think we have a decent shot at this, but there are, just, there are so many possible answers. So let's bring in the distinguished mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim. Tim, is there any chance that it's some combination of <laughs> Brett and Mays and Musial and Aaron? Oh yeah, sure is, guys. So yes, I think you might have gotten you might have gotten both. You know, no, you needed the teamwork. You needed uh, the uh, bending of the rules to get this nice. one right. But you got it again. So uh, the answers are George Brett. So Jason, you got that one, and then Stan the Man, usual oh, Cardinals. Uh, so Doug got wow. that one. Um, actually, man. at one point, I'm uh, doing a little extra research on this. I believe at one point Robin Yount also qualified. But he has been passed by Ryan Braun. So he's no longer one of these guys. But there was a time when three players held that distinction. I I just looked up Willie Mays and the Giants. Uh, He was second all-time in triples to a guy I've never heard of, Mike Tiernan. One of that guy. Tiernan. Tiernan. I I also checked to make sure that uh, Ernie Banks had more triples than Doug Glanville, and he did. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, sure I, I, I'm, I'm so glad we got this. Uh, you know, Jack sure would have enjoyed that. Uh, he would have enjoyed stumping us even more. But, like, whatever. I, I, I think 
uh, thanks to Glanville's new cheating method, we've now gotten six out of nine right. Is that accurate? That sound right? That sounds you? right. You guys are on a roll. Jeez. Six out of nine. That's six world championships. Impressive. How about that. Well, yeah. either way, if you listen regularly, you know whether we get the question right or wrong, we still bring in the mayor to play some cool audio clip that has something to do with the trivia. So let's bring back the mayor. Mayor Tim, what do you got for us today? We're going to go back to 1963, September 29th, Stan Musial's final at-bat, guys, and oh his final hit as he added to that total. Here we go. Remember the stance and the swing. You're not likely to see his likes again. The pitch to Mewfield. A hot shot on the ground in the right field. The base hit. His throw around third. Here's a no throw. The Cardinals lead. One to nothing. Listen to the crowd. Oh, my God. That was tremendous. Was that Harry Carey? I think it was. <laughs> yes. It was yep, the young Harry Carey calling oh. Stan Mewfield's last hit. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, what a what a fun moment! What a fun question! The Jack Shore Classic, Mountain. Thank you so much for asking that. Uh, now next week we er, let me do this again. Now next time we'll go back to involving our listeners, uh, inviting you guys to join us and experience the thrill of victory or the agony of having us get your question right. But uh, we'll tell you how to do that a little later in this podcast. But first. One thing we try to do is use the trivia question to inspire a topic for the show. And this week, that means talking about another one of our trivia heroes, the late, great Alex Trebek, who passed away at age 80 over the weekend. Uh, Doug, I've been watching Jeopardy since I was in high school, and it also inspired my love of trivia. In fact, in my Wild Pitches book, uh, I made a joking reference to myself as the Alex Trebek of baseball. But (laughs) honestly, I'm not worthy of that. Um, Doug, you had a way more direct combination to Alex Trebek. What was it? Well, you know, I'm going to throw it to the listeners to do a little research on this. But because uh, when I taught my class at University of Pennsylvania in 2018, uh, my TA was named John Villanova. Uh, not like the university, but you know, Villanova. And um, and John texted me. He watches not only Jeopardy all the time, but he records it. So he can't even remember what episode this might have been from. So I've tried to go online, can't seem to find it. But he, he said, hey, I think you were just an answer to a trivia question on Jeopardy. That's all I know. So I'm throwing what? it out there. I can't confirm. <laughs> I can't I because I'm trying to go online. Could be total fantasy, but I'm just, I did text him. So he said he's going to look and see if he can figure it out. And if he was, uh, you know, not not all, all there when he uh, sent me this text. <laughs> I don't know. So we'll see. But I could, that would be cool. But I, I have not heard anything since. I would imagine it would be in Twitter. So we don't know. So help me out, audience. Could be totally untrue, but it sounds great. He's a former number one pick. Tyra Banks, the model, once mailed him a copy of Home Plate. <laughs> okay, who, who that's is Doug Manville? I got it. <laughs> Dancing with the stars. Okay, that's not that's not an actual event. We just totally made that up. But Doug Doug was a uh, uh, Doug was rumor has it a Jeopardy answer question something. We don't know. Well, let's audience check it out for me and let me know. <laughs> if we get more details, we'll catch up on that next time. We can't talk about Alex Trebek 
without bringing in a man who works for the athletic, who actually was a three-time Jeopardy champion. We're talking about the one, the only, Andrew Baggerly. Andy, <laughs> thanks for joining us here in Starkville, man. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Great. Thanks for yeah, having me. Great. Thanks for joining yes, us. Yes, sir. Like, we're, we're, we're in the presence of greatness, Doug. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, that is serious. And this is the ultimate trivia no level here. Um, I've, been, I've, I've watched uh, 10,000 Jeopardy shows in my house. I'm not even the <laughs> champion in my own house. So, so <laughs> tell us when you were on and uh, how it came about. Well, I tried to get on Jeopardy for like basically most of my life. <laughs> right? I tried to get on the, the college show. I tried to, I tried out uh, and actually passed the test when I was about 25 maybe uh, when they used to hold the um, in-person test at the Ramada Inn in Culver City. Um, and I got to play the mock game uh, in the studio uh, one time. But it was my first year covering baseball, and I thought, I, I can't take any. I finally got a major league beat. I was covering the Angels. It was 2000, I think. And uh, I thought, well, I, I can't break away from covering the team. This is the most important thing ever. I can't miss a, 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 a road trip to Baltimore and Tampa to go on Jeopardy. That's just, you know. <laughs> Uh, shirking my duties so i put in the notes i said i said i'm unavailable from april to october and i think that probably sunk my chances of being picked uh, for a taping date in, in retrospect i'm like what were you thinking but uh i didn't give up I, I i took the test a couple more times and then i took it in 2010 or 11 when it was online and i just sort of forgotten about it and then they got back to me and said, you've made the cut for the uh, the next round where you get to play the mock game in front of the producers and everything and do sort of the screen test. And it's on November 2nd or 3rd, whatever day it was, uh, 2010. And uh, so I, I, I told one of my friends, hey, I, I made the cut. I'm going to be on. This is the date. And he said, well, well that's that's." <laughs> And at this point, the Giants, I think, were, were battling the Padres for the division. I thought, oh, what, what are the chances they'll get in? And then what are the chances that, you know, they'll play Game 7 of the World Series? So here I am in Texas for Game 5 thinking, please, please let the series end. Let the series end. And sure enough, the Giants win in Game 5 of the World Series. We go back. We have the parade. I'm fried. You know what it's like to cover the postseason. You're on red eyes for a month. I'm, and, and the test is the next day after the parade. I haven't had a day off in like 40 days. And I think, well, I'm fried. I'm so fried. There's no, at least I don't have to take another test. And then I go and walk into the hotels, Weston St. Francis downtown. And they said, okay, first thing we're going to do is take a 50 wow. question test. Oh, no. And I thought, oh, but I, I must have had enough brain cells working because I made it. And uh, and then I was, I taped in, in March of 2012 and the shows aired in, in July of 2012. And uh, uh, yeah, it was, I, w I was extraordinarily lucky. I had some categories break my way. I had got enough daily doubles and. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, I was not a great champion. I, I did not have any runaway games. I, I needed a lot of luck. But, um, yeah, it was just – it was a great experience. And everybody who works on that show, all the contestant coordinators, all the producers, everybody, they were just so nice. And they made that experience just so, such a great memory. Even if you'd gone on the show and lost, it would be just a tremendous memory. And I'm so glad lost I got too. And to uh, Andy, what were your interactions like with the late, great Alex Trebek? Yeah, so I mean, as I sort of spelled out in the piece, um, you really don't interact with him at all, uh, other than what you see uh, at home. 
and uh, and that's because that's for compliance reasons. I mean, he's got all the answers, and and you want all the answers. So, um, you know, he's all all back there doing the stuff with the writers and going over all of his material and pronunciations and flagging things while we're doing all of our contestant sort of orientation and trying to figure out the signaling device and and you know. Uh, doing all that stuff. So um, really the only interaction you have is, is on set. And, and clearly he was, he was taken with the fact that I was a sports writer and he loves sports. Uh, he definitely, I think maybe if, if he took any kind of shine to me, I think it was because of that. And, um, uh, but, but the, the one thing that you don't really get to experience is the little banter for about, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes, whatever it is, where we stand on the stage at the end of the show and the credits roll. And, and, and so four times I got to do that with him and just have some just brief little small talk. And, uh, and, and those are definitely little memories that I'm going to cherish. Hey, I, I loved your anecdote in the piece you wrote about the toughest question that Alex Trebek asked you. Uh, and he did not ask it in the form of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so one of the things that you're doing when you're in this uh, orientation period in the morning um, is you're filling out uh, this form with all of these anecdotes about yourself. So, you know, I, I, I put a bunch of stuff down like, hey, you know, I weighed 12 pounds at birth. That's an interesting <laughs> thing. I, I have – What? Which is true actually. <laughs> mother. My, I send my mother flowers every Mother's Day. Um I'm one of seven kids. You know, I, I put different uh, things that I thought were interesting uh, that they could put down, hobbies and interests. And, and, and Alex just zeroed right in on the fact that I'm a voter for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And uh, and one of the contestant coordinators said, hey, just, just a heads up, Alex is really interested in that, and he's probably going to ask you about that. So I thought, okay, he'll probably ask me, you know, what, what is it like, or have you gone to the Hall of Fame, or, who, who, you know. Uh, but no, he fires it right out there. He's like, so, you know, there's a lot of players who've taken steroids and there's a lot of controversy. So where, where do you stand on that as a voter? And I was like, (laughs) I'm about to step in it here. So I think I, I sort of flubbed and and stammered my way through it. But, uh, but then he, he said at the very end, he said, well, you handled that well. So I thought, wow. Alex Trebek's seal of approval doesn't get any better than that. Whoa, that is heavy. Yeah, other people, other people are asked, you know, hey, how did you meet your husband? Or the, the champion that day was asked, hey, you like Texas barbecue. Tell me about that. And I get, is Barry Bonds a Hall of Famer or, or is he a steroid guy and you keep him out? You know, it's like, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty loaded. The most loaded question I got on Jeopardy. Yeah, and so so what are the keys to like trivia genius Jeopardy style? I mean, you know, a lot of us like trivia and tidbits, but to go to this almost like professional level, I mean, what did you think the separator was? Well, I think that there's some things that are pretty practical. I'm knowing uh, wagering strategy. It, it was really kind of shocking to me how few contestants kind of did their homework on it a little bit. And, and I saw it, you know, in, in the week that I was on, uh, some of the tapings right before I went on, uh, there were people who got it right and didn't wager the, the correct amount or didn't really think about it um, in strategic terms. And and now I think you've seen a lot of growth there, and especially with James Holzhauer. Um, it's really taken off, and I think people are, are a little bit smarter in how they wager these days. But, yeah, just game theory is a big part of it. Um, just pacing and realizing that you have to let something go. If you couldn't conjure an answer, and, 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 and you couldn't get on the board, and, and you're frustrated by it. The next clue's coming right at you. You just have to let it go. Um, in, in a way, it was almost like the mindset of being an athlete, um, I think. Um, you know, you just you have to move on to the next thing. And uh, in terms of how you actually get the, get the responses from the clues, a lot of times they lead you in the direction where you can make a pretty darn educated guess. Uh, or maybe you just know that, you know, uh, 
Ljubljana is the capital of Slovenia. <laughs> maybe you just know that. And, and, and you're able to, to ring in and say Slovenia. But maybe there's something in there that has a reference to like Melania Trump's from this country. Oh, well, she's from Slovenia, you know. So um, sometimes they'll give you a couple different avenues to get to an answer. And, uh, and, and then, you know, obviously I didn't play this way, but people are hunting the daily doubles now, which is sound strategy. And I would play it differently if I played it now. But I was a top-down, pretty conventional player. Um, just because I like to get in the rhythm of a category uh, uh, with with the easier clues before you get to the harder ones, but but yeah, it's I think it's just you know, having a curious personality, being someone who retains uh, information and, and and can think kind of fast. I mean, again, I, I wasn't elite in any of those areas, but I think I just had enough to be competitive in all those areas, and um, and just got really lucky. Well, sorry, I, I knocked my mic over again. Um, Mike's attacking him. My stand is all loose. What? Hey, Andy, one thing I've always wondered about is the art of ringing in. Um, did you, did you <laughs> ever ring in when you didn't mean to ring in? Or did you ever ring in, hit, hit the buzzer so quickly, and then realized that this was a big mistake? <laughs> you know what? What I was most terrified by wasn't, you know, was, was basically looking dumb. I, I just didn't want to look dumb. I didn't want to, um, I, I actually felt embarrassed when there was a triple stumper. I was kind of like, Hey, if one of my other contestants rings in and gets it right, then I can just say, Oh, I, I knew that, but I, I couldn't ring in in time, you know, but, but when it's a, you know, no <laughs> one gets it, then you, you just feel like how dumb are we? we just let that one go by. Um, but yeah, I, the signaling device is almost like shooting free throws. You get in a rhythm where you just hit like eight, 10 in a row and you're just on it. And then you just fall out of that rhythm and, and, and you get beaten <laughs> on it. Um, uh, it helped, it helped to have been on a couple shows, uh, and, 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 you know, be on four times to get more of a rhythm for it. I, and I can imagine if you're a Ken Jennings who was on, you know, 70 times, you've got to just be like, you know, you got no chance to beat him on the buzzer because he's so, so, uh, sort of in the zone for when that board gets armed. And there are little lights on the outside that you can't see at home that tell you when the board is armed and you can ring in. And if you ring in too early, you're locked out for a quarter of a second. Um, but you, you almost have to anticipate when that those lights are going to come on. And they come on when Alex says the last syllable of the last word uh, of the clue. And uh, and so you almost have to anticipate it and be right on wow. it and ready to pounce. And, uh, uh, that's, so that's fascinating. It sounds like analytics. You need some analytics. I, like I uh, think Andy <laughs> figured them out before anybody. Yeah, sounds like. <laughs> like you're, you're. But I mean, you know, the the, the best part of the show uh, for me was 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 Alex, and, and that's what I hope to get across. I mean, he was the show, you know, literally. And I, there, how how much really shared experience do we have uh, on TV now? We've got the Super Bowl. You got you know maybe uh, the World Series to a lesser extent, but. I mean, we used to just all sit in front of the TV and watch the same sitcoms and watch the same shows and talk about the same things. And we don't have a lot of those shared experiences anymore. And I think Jeopardy is and was one of them. And, I, and that's why I think Alex Trebek passing really hit hard, uh, hit, hit hard for a lot of people and uh, definitely hit me hard as well. And, and um, you know, he's just so classy, uh, everything he would do. He's somebody who wanted to be introduced not as the star of the show but as the host of the show because he didn't see himself as the star he was just there to run the game and uh and you could tell he was as much as that guy was on tv more than anybody else in history uh, i think he he, he broke up bob barker's record for most most shows hosted uh he still wasn't comfortable in the spotlight he never wanted to make it about himself and uh, i just think that's remarkable. andy i'm sure you braced yourself for this news for a long time but when you actually heard this on sunday 
what were you, what were your first thoughts? How did you react? This was personal for you. Um, I, you know, I think uh, I wasn't shocked, like you said. I mean, the survival rate I think past one year with with uh, the type of cancer he had is about seven percent. You know, he's getting the best care in the world. You know, he's he's as determined as he could be. Mostly, I just felt grateful. I, I felt grateful that he got that extra time um, to. To, to record more shows and, and have those interactions with more contestants who will have those memories with him. I mean, he recorded his last uh, show 11 days Amazing. before he passed. And uh, I think we're, we're going to have episodes through Christmas. So, um, hey, and, and you know, he's he was a Dodger fan and a Laker fan. So he got to see the Dodgers and Lakers both win championships before he passed on. I'll, I'll bet you he was really cheering from uh, uh, wherever he was uh convalescing in, in those days and uh yeah i i like to think about that yeah, and think that, about that, the good that's memories. so cool and like one last thing we'll let you run i wrote about this in your piece tell us what you did with the money that you won and how it's kind of a lasting testament to your time on jeopardy uh, yeah, so so uh, we bought a house uh, in the Bay Area in 2012, and uh, the backyard was uh, a, a pretty big eyesore. Um, so we just ripped everything out and 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 built a whole new backyard. And I, I I wanted to do that because I wanted to have something that I could sort of experience um, that reminded me of, of of that Jeopardy time. And you know I. Won about sixty thousand uh, dollars on the show, which was uh, pretty good for a day's <laughs> day's pay. And uh, um, so now we've got a nice deck, and I barbecue out there, and we've got uh, some fruit trees, and I got a little um, uh, accessory structure that we got our home gym in out there, and, and a little patio, uh, a little water feature, and stuff going on. And I'll tell you what, these last eight months, it's been just an absolute blessing to have a place you can go just to relax outside, or or you know, burn off some calories on my elliptical machine or rowing machine out there in the little shed I've got out there and, you know, with all the gyms closed up and everything in California. So, um, yeah, it, it's, I, I often think of, of, of how fortunate I was to be on Jeopardy and, and, and to have those interactions with Alex when I'm out in, as I call it, the backyard. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Camp Jeopardy back there. That's <laughs> very cool. You should have like a giant buzzer, like a pool shaped like a buzzer. That would, that would really, that would, <laughs> yeah, right. How would that work? Never mind. <laughs> hey, listen, Andy, you're, you're the Ken Jennings of the athletic. That's how we think of you, man. So great piece. I urge everyone to read it and so much fun to have you here and hear these stories. Thanks. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, love the Alex Trebek stories, Doug. Uh, like, honestly, this podcast would not be what it is without Alex Trebek. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, a great debt of gratitude <laughs> for stumping ourselves, stumping ourselves half the time, but you know, whatever. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All, all those trivia questions that we've missed on this show, it's all his fault. <laughs> all right, finally, Doug, it's been a long time since we got to hang out in the dugout. That's where Doug Glanville does his thing and tells us his stories and imparts his wisdom. Just Glanville's it up. So uh, since the off season's just beginning, uh, we thought it would be cool to revisit a classic piece, Doug, that you wrote at ESPN.com quite a few years ago on things players learn in the offseason. Why don't you share a couple of those things today? Well, I always thought about this. Every offseason, I had this <laughs> dream that I would end and I would make a T-shirt, 10 things you figure out in the offseason. 
And I, I, I should have just done it, sold all kids. Because now everybody has shirts, you know, like, you know, beast mode or whatever. Every team has a shirt, right? So, uh, but I always laugh at talking to my teammates in the off season, getting ready to work out. And everybody has epiphany, has an epiphany. Like everyone, all these epiphanies, <laughs> it'd be like alerts on your phone. And um, so I think the, so I wrote down these 10 things. I'm not going to go through all 10, but two of them did stand out to me. First of all, as a hitter, as soon as the season ends, you figure out how to have the perfect swing. It's, it's like, oh, wait a minute. That's right. You know, if I just tilt my shoulder in a little bit at 33 degrees, I get the triple toe tap, I get the leg kick going, and the elbow tucked, I'm going to hit 450. And of course, it makes perfect sense in this beautiful vacuum we call the offseason, where your hamstring is not hurting anymore. You're not facing Randy Johnson or whoever. And of course, it all makes sense. So you work on this perfect stroke. And of course, the first day of spring training, it all collapses underneath you uh, once you come back around. So perfect swing, perfect release point, perfect mechanics. Everything is perfect in this vacuum we call the offseason. And the other thing, of course, is a sort of diet workout routine. You do, you've been doing research. You get in the offseason. You say, wait a minute. I know exactly what I need to do. So, of course, one offseason I did Pilates. One offseason I did what I should credit be credited for, dancing with the stars before dancing with the stars. Took dance lessons at, uh, I think it's Arthur Murray Dance Studios. I learned the tango, <laughs> the foxtrot, the whatever. Because, of course, all this together is going to allow me to hit 375 next season. So, of course, you can't do that without the special smoothies that you come up with. So, you know, I mean, lemongrass with a touch of mango <laughs> with a guava puree, added vitamin C, and some gravel from your front driveway. Whatever it takes, that's what you do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we, I think the offseason is a celebration of now that you're away from the competition, you realize everything that's wrong in your life, everything that you need to fix. Uh, to become this great player that you're planning the next season. And of course, all of it works until about opening day. And then you say, you know what? I'm going back to what I need to do here. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Uh, Like, I know we laugh about this stuff. It's not really as crazy as it sounds. When I first started covering the Phillies, I covered a legendary GM named Paul. The Pope. The Pope. And, yep. And I once asked him, about a player who had a tough season, right? And he said something that I never forgot. He said, he needs to go home and have a meeting with himself. <laughs> and, like, that's a whole different way of saying what you just said, Doug. Yeah, don't you I think? mean, it's, it's like, I think it's the speed. Baseball, is, of course, we love. But what we know about it is it's hard to reflect in a season because you play every day i mean it just keeps coming at you so you don't get any perspective of like wait a minute what am i doing and so it's it's really hard to make these wholesale changes so you have to incrementally you know you rely on your coaches you rely on feedback and then when you finally get away from it you you want to do something big right you know you have to do something big so you do have a meeting with yourself that you couldn't have during the season and you're like okay well you know let me look at the video a little bit oh yeah that's right my hip wasn't closed and you go back to like 3 years before <laughs> that and realize that you had a good season when your hip was closed and and that's i mean that's what it is so it's constant it is constant which is why we're in our own heads all the time <laughs> Uh, so I appreciate the Pope for that um, because uh, more meetings with yourself. And now that you have the time in the off season, 
you can have as many meetings as you want. I wonder if I should, you know, send the alert to myself on Google and just, you know, say I'm busy and then my busyness is because I'm meeting with myself. So thanks, Pope, for that wisdom. Yeah. Now you would say you need to go home and have a Zoom <laughs> meeting with yourself. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for another memorable edition of Starkville. Let's remind you again, Starkville is now available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the tremendous writing on our site, there is no better sports writing anywhere than in the Athletic. If you thought about subscribing, we've got a great podcast special for you. Just click on the athletic.com slash Starkville and you can subscribe for just $1 a week. So check us out especially with the baseball offseason starting up, you'll be happy you did. Also remember that you too can be part of this podcast. We are inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us and prove there is almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you can email to us at starkville@theathletic.com. Or you can do what most people do. Hit us up on Twitter, where you would find Doug Glanville at? At Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And you can find me at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's at Jason with a Y, S-T. And just hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Ken Rosenthal and... Andy Baggerly for visiting us. Thanks to Melton McGilvray for the trivia question. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We will see you soon on Starkville.